Welcome to the T's and C's. Tisa and Chantel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's COVID-19 Weekly Reflection. We've been running now over three months, pondering, imagining and thinking about all the different sociological things we should be thinking about during this time, from the global pandemic to more recently, Black Lives Matter, to also thinking about how institutions are responding to this moment. We are really, really, really privileged to be joined today by former lecturer, activist, PhD researcher in psychology, and a person that is very much interested in and fighting for decolonizing in the real sense. Take note, <laughs> Khadija Diskin. Thank you so much for joining us, Khadija. Thank you so much for having me. We've just had such a cool pre-discussion where I've just sat back and listened to T and Khadija just going at it about blackness and modernity. Where have you been all my life, Khadija? Where have you been, man? No one agrees with me, but where you been? Where you been? I was fighting this battle, you get me? Khadija's at his fan on this canon, and I knew as soon as I come up, as soon as I come across Khadija, I think it was an article you wrote in Black yeah. Ballad. I was like, yeah. Oh my life, this person, this is my person, amazing. Um, I came to our pre-discussion sort of saying, I was feeling exceptionally exhausted still regarding Black Lives Matter and how institutions and white people have been responding to it. And I think Khadija really perfectly summarised sort of how I've been feeling personally with regards to how people have been trying to contextualise and compartmentalise what was happening. So I was wondering if you could just start off by talking a bit about that, Khadija. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we're seeing right now is kind of a global black revolution. And the nature of blackness as it exists is that it's something that is kind of organic. It's something that exists. It's something that is complex. It's something that is almost free flowing in how it how it meanders, how we kind of engage with the world has always been contentious. And we've never been able to kind of fit within the narrow parameters of kind of structures that exist for us. And so we create movements out of nothing and we create these mass political statements through kind of very much what we embody and who we are. And what we're seeing, I think, right now and what we're seeing that happens all the time with black political movements is this real need to capture our phenomena. And what happens when you try to capture a phenomena is that you miss things, right? You miss certain parts of it. There's a really interesting kind of thought that comes from Jamesian kind of ideas about the stream of consciousness. And I think of blackness and I think about this moment as that kind of stream. It's actually a moving river. We've always existed. We've always said these things. Every now and then it becomes a bit more popularized it becomes a bit more contentious but these things are always happening and because it's so big right now people are trying to capture it and by capturing it they're decontextualizing our experiences they're removing a lot of who we are and a lot of the disruptive nature of who we are from this moment and they're expecting things that we can't promise you know they're expecting black lives matter to be this strict organization that has all these rules it can't be that they're expecting black people to have all the knowledge about blackness we can't have that you know we're just existing and what you're seeing is us just being who we are and us just fighting against structures that have tried to contain us for the longest time so it's going to be disruptive it's going to be messy it won't always be something that you're able to understand but we're just trying to exist and I think trying to exist in this state whilst being so heavily surveilled while having so many eyes on us because if you're anyone who's done stuff on race, you'll know that you've been talking for a long time and every now and then people pay attention. But most of the time, they actually don't care and you're just that person who talks about race all the time. And now we're all being watched. You know, Now people are engaging with us en masse without thinking about 
our humanity within this process without allowing us to consent to these types of engagement, right? People are bombarding us with like wanting information, wanting, you know, support. You know, I've had people go, oh, can you you help me teach my white kids about racism? Random strangers. That's how bad it's gotten because when you're a black person, you're existing in these moments, people expect you to do these types of labors for them. And they expect you to be willing to give up your time, give up your humanity, give up who you are, you know, to fit their narratives, to fit their structures. And unfortunately, it's not something that I think we should do. And I think it's something we should resist at every given opportunity or else we will face what we're facing now. And this this exhaustion, you know, this complete just feeling of just wanting everyone to stop. Right. So I've been reading some like Christina Sharp's work in the wake, right? And it kind of encapsulates say so so how do I how do people encapsulate a movement that predates modernity, right? So we were struggling. The struggle was always since the sixteenth century, since seventeen sixty one Phyllis Wheatley in a in a in a town in America, in Virginia, being being objectified, being surveilled. Those things still happen today to black people. So how do people encapsulate blackness that transcends modernity, that transcends the structures that you understand the world today? They're struggling. So they try to politicize it. So it must be like this. But no, if it predates you, the struggle predates you. This moment is an echo that echoed through time, man. And I'm just yeah. a living embodiment of this echo in this present moment. This present moment, I've been saying the same stuff since the first day you, me and you encountered each other. Right now you're listening. And right now you're trying to comprehend in a single moment over 500 years. In a exactly. single moment. It's impossible. It's impossible exactly. for anyone. I'm overwhelmed at this because I'm looking at and getting in touch with my blackness and I'm thinking to myself, oh, is this what I've been living in and comprehending? It? And what does it understand me? And how is it affecting the violence? How has that violence affected me? How I've dealt with people now, in the past, in the future. And in this moment, time and space collapse into one space, man. How, how do you do that? How do you do that? Because... Modernity has taught me to look at things in a linear motion, Absolutely. that things start off at one thing and end up in another thing. Something starts, something dies. But right now, this thing has been existing, as far as I'm aware, at all times, in all spaces. Absolutely. At certain times, in certain epochs, you looked at it one way, if it's scientific racism, today you're looking at it in institutional or, or you call me an immigrant, but it's the same thing, the same oh, structural violence. But I predate that violence, man. I predate. I was. I was around when you were thinking, raw. Like you didn't know what the earth or the sun was. You was. That's what we're talking about, man. Time and space collapsing on each other, and how do we understand these moments? It will take a lifetime, man. It will absolutely, and I think you know that's just the nature of blackness. Blackness should be disruptive. Blackness should not be tried. You know, there's any attempts to try and capture us, trying to confine us, should always be fought against, and it should be fought against because, as you say, so we transcend these kind of boundaries we transcend these categories we transcend any of these kind of boxes that they try to put us in or try to capture of what and who we are blackness is something that is i to me you know i've really tried to reconnect with what blackness means to me on a spiritual level on an intellectual level and seeing these things as not separate but completely interwoven and seeing these various kind of ways in which we can think about the ontology of blackness, the epistemology of blackness and the ethos of blackness is actually interwoven. They're all kind of singularly embodied in who I am. And what Mm -hmm. that means as a researcher is to face violence, you know, is to face Mm -hmm. violence where people are telling you, you have to remove your blackness from this work. How do I do that? How do I extract, you know, the the kind of corpus of who I am from Mm -hmm. my work? Because I see it so much attached to me. Right now, we're always talking about how my experience now is guiding me. So my experience, not just me as an individual, but echoes through my people through time, right? So this is a very kind of personal idea of knowledge and epistemology. And now contrast that with David Starkey, 
what he came out with. He's presenting what we know modernity to be. Try to present themselves as the objective arbiter of knowledge, right? So I position myself. I'm talking about something that is quite personal. And I know it's happening, but I'm trying to depersonalize it. Like it's some kind of science. Like it's something that can be laid bare and analyze and symmetry but we already described that this is a philosophical ontological problem that sits there at level of metaphysics you can't grasp that way and people like starkey know this right they know this because listen i've read your books rude boy so listen i understand that you know this but you understand the alignment you understand canon you understand these things but right now western modernity hasn't got the tools to understand me or to do me justice right the structures that they have are not good enough to capture this phenomena. They're not good enough mm. to explain this phenomena. You know, whenever white people, whenever white historians, white academics encounter moments like this, where for them, in their perception, for the first time, they are not the experts. They are not the, the most knowledgeable persons in the room. They will push up against it and they will try and stifle our creative thought, our creative imaginary. They will stifle the black imagination with, as what you said earlier, with, with bureaucracy, because that's the only way they know how to do it. They will try and manage our problems away. And our problems can't be managed under these kinds of structures. They absolutely can't. Thinking about the exhaustion, but then also thinking about how our experience transcends modernity. There's a few things that's coming through my head right now, but Obviously, we have people that listen to the show that are white listeners that are very much, I would say, critically engaged with some of the topics that we discuss on here. Within this moment, we've had quite a lot of white people that want to solve this issue, want to solve the quote unquote divide, want to understand, but equally put to rest any division that we might have. And what I would really love your two thoughts on is how we answer those questions in a in a practical sense I know there isn't one answer to that but because that is what I'm getting time and time and time again from people on a daily basis whether it's friends family colleagues academics they want an answer and I'm like there isn't an answer because this thing is beyond answers answers are what you have created and it's really hard to not be like, obviously, we're talking very philosophically here and we enjoy this because this is we're feeling more comfortable because it's not trying to compartmentalise who we are. But equally, in the practical sense, we have to be live and be around these people. So what can we do, basically? And this isn't me trying to bureaucratise what you guys are saying, but it's more to try and give black people in particular some some ways of just distancing themselves from having to quote unquote answer these pressing questions that are coming from white people right now. Chantal, this question is like the question, right? It's the question, I've had it. And I don't have the answers because one thing that I used to do and one thing that I've had to stop doing to preserve my own sense of sanity and preserve my own mental health really is to think about who and why I should engage with things, right? What is my purpose? What is my, what am I trying to do? What is my scholarship? What am I, you know, what, who am I trying to help? What is my activism about? And I used to very much be of the mind of, I have to be the one who educates all white people on how to fix these issues. But the truth of the matter is, these issues can't be fixed. You can't fix these issues. These structures need to be destroyed. And that's a, and and if you say that to a white person, they're not going to like, they probably don't want to hear that. You know, if you say to them, I appreciate you wanting to help. This is the structural issue. We have to completely like get rid of what we conceive of as modernity and postmodernity. These structures that exist, these neoliberal structures that benefit you, these structures of racial capitalism that benefit you. The only way for me to ever feel better 
is if they stopped existing. The only way for black people to ever survive is if they stopped existing. I don't think you want that to happen, actually. And what I've come to find is that many people don't actually want those to happen. They don't want to actually acknowledge their intricacies because it's comfortable to really kind of push forward the revolution, to really kind of answer and help black people is to sit in discomfort, is to push up against institutions, is to be an abolitionist, really. It's to really engage with those types of practices and those types of theories. And a lot of white people aren't ready for those types of conversations. So one thing I've stopped doing is having those types of conversations, you know, and they can have conversations with themselves because, you know, I'll put my hands up and say they're knowledgeable white people who are doing the work. Engage with them. You know, the expectation that there's somewhat, you know, black friends, black colleagues is duty to do this labor is in and of itself another form of this epistemic violence that we have to deal with constantly and i don't yeah. do it anymore i'm absolutely like no actually no i won't do this you know <laughs> i won't do this anymore i'm far more concerned with the survival of black people so i'm far more concerned currently in how the black women i'm seeing who are all having to engage in these ways who are facing these violences on a daily basis how they're surviving how we create community how mm. i kind of lift myself up with them and you know mm. and that's one thing that i found that has absolutely been beneficial to me it's having other black women who i admire people like jade bentel people like Farah Hassani, who are just you know they're just allowing black women to exist and just allowing us to cry and allowing us to be vulnerable and allowing yeah. kind of the destructive and messy natures of our existence to just be because I think right now, that's what a lot of us just want. We want to just exist for a little bit and we're not able to. Khadija, listen, boom. Like, that, that's where I am, man. Like, you're with my people and, like, I look you for my people. But if philosophically, if I had to answer that question, like, what do we do? I pose a question back to the, my white people and saying, like, do you imagine a better world, right? I tend to kind of switch it on its head and talk about capitalism, right? And so I said, you know, the clo- piece of clothing you're wearing that someone around in another country in the global south is being exploited. You know that, right? You know that you're contributing to things. So to imagine a better world, you have to destroy that, right? You have to be Absolutely. ready to let go of some of your privilege, let go of some of your privilege mm-hmm. to be, to free them. And I said, that's where we need. So this blackness, this awakeness is an existential threat, the same as climate change, the same as ending capitalism. It's existential because it will change your world. The kicker is this. If you free me, you free everyone else and you'll change the world forever. Because globally, I'm considered socially at the bottom of so many groups, but you free me, everyone else is free. That is what all people want. Human, if we're talking purely from a Western thought, human beings want individual, we want individual freedom, right? I give you freedom, man. Emancipate me, I free, free everyone. And that's the world you want, right? That's the problem, though. And this is the thing I think people who talk about kind of racial capitalism and the nature of global anti-blackness have really kind of hmm. touched on. And it's what the Afro-pessimists have touched on. And it's big hmm. business to be anti-black. If we're absolutely real, it is big yeah, yeah, business yeah, yeah. to be anti-black. <laughs> and a lot of people are using anti-blackness to position themselves closer to whiteness. And we see hmm. this kind of movement operationalized constantly and what everyone is having to come to terms with is this global black revolution and what it means for their intercommunal communal anti-blackness how are you guys going to affirm black lives whilst remaining anti-black that statement that position what we're kind of having to witness it's really powerful it's really powerful at what black lives matter affirms it's the fact that for the first time blackness is central you know blackness is the thing that My is being did and a lot of people are not ready, honestly. Like they're not ready. That's that's what I think. A lot of people are not ready. In all honesty, was I ready? Like for, I, I listen. I thought when George Floyd died, that was a standard. That's standard for us, right? I know that thing. But what I didn't expect to see this, like, boom! I think you're wrong. 
Like, I didn't expect to see this happen. And as a black person, the first thing I am is hesitant. I'm cynical about yes. the whole thing because I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm seeing it happen. But I know at any point it's been co-opted, which it has. It's been capitalised. My black pain's been commoditized, and all those things that we've spoken about, right? So I know this because that's what happens normally. If you want to see black pain, Netflix, it's on there all the time. So you don't need to look far. But I saw that moment. And in that moment, I sat there and I could see, I see possibility, man, for the first time ever. For the first time in my life, I saw possibility. Possibility on, not. Just, I'm not just campaigning for equal rights or something. Like, I'm kind of beyond those ideas of campaigning saying, I'm just, a, am I not a man? Beyond that, a philosophical shift that will fundamentally change the Western world forever. Put me on par. So I can walk into, not even just walk into boardrooms, I can walk into a fucking sweet shop and man don't follow me around the bookshop because he sees me as the same, you get me? He sees me as the same. And it's beyond those things, man. And I see that possibility. And that's what keeps me going, man. Well, I feel like one of the things that is exhausting me is a combination of what you're both talking about, that hope and possibility, but also that exhaustion, but also that realisation that I need to channel my energy into people that are on that journey with me and you meant and that was I think that's such a poignant and important point you made Khadija and I think it's definitely something which I thought I knew I really now know is integral to my survival and like freedom essentially be able to just be me this is the first time I've experienced hope and pain in such a visceral way yes yes and just coming to terms with the fact that those two things can be, exist at the same time, I think is why I keep needing to nap. <laughs> <laughs> why I'm struggling to write, like I'm struggling to write my PhD because it's talking about really intense racism. Like I'm talking, like it's just, it's a lot in it. The struggle it's is lot, real. But- this is the thing, I'm exhausted, but I keep moving. Yes. One thing I have to say that has really kind of, given me a sense of hope that I didn't have before is the ways in which young people are mobilizing yes. they're mobilizing with an energy and with a force that I've never seen before I love and them I love honestly, them like the Black Lives Matter protest one of the Black Lives Matter protests that happened in Manchester yeah. I happened to just which you organized didn't you <laughs> yeah I was one of the people yeah <laughs> no I can't take that credit honestly because I was cynical like <laughs> I was like, listen, kids, because these were young people. They were like 18-year-olds. I was like, listen, kids, first of all, this is what we tried to do here. This is what we tried to do then. This is what the police have done to us. So all this rah-rah thing you think you lot are going to do, these are some of the realities. This is how we have to protect you. This is how we have to make sure we're safe. So I came in there like a mum, like with a checklist, with like a risk assessment. And these kids were like, no, we just want to pull up. You know, (laughs) like that was their energy. Chantal, I, I kid you not, right? So I was there the whole time, like, looking at everything that could possibly go wrong. I've got anxiety as well, so I'm constantly analysing situations. <laughs> I've got the policeman. As soon as, as soon as I see his little high-vis, the corner of it, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, what's he going to do? What are they going to do? Continuously scanning the environment. I'm like, right, riots, crushes happen. When, are they, when, when could a crush possibly happen? And these kids were like, no, nah, we just want to pull up and we just want to speak and we just want to say they can't silence us. And they did it. And it was beautiful. And like I said, it was one of those things where like, it was a phenomenon, it couldn't be captured. They were pulling up, they were just coming, they were showing, they were being present. They were speaking from their heart. They didn't come planned, prepared. They didn't have all these kind of really kind of Western organizational structures that that, that could have confined them. They were like, nah, I wanna exist and I wanna be who I am and I wanna say what I wanna say. And they did it. And thousands of people came and thousands of people spoke. And it was beautiful and I'm literally like, that's that's exactly what I needed to see. But you see that spontaneity of youth, right? 
But that, yeah. that synchronicity, that synchronicity links to their online lives, right? How they, how they, uh, how they, how they gather themselves, how they present themselves in a multiple ways, that simultaneously being one and something at the same time, right? That you can see that and how they talk and how they do many things at once. But what the fear is, and what my fear is, I'm an adult, right? Uh-huh. And adults try to crush youth, right? I, I sit there and they'll say stuff to me and I know better because mm-hmm. experience says I know better. So there's a hierarchy within hierarchies, right? Mm-hmm. So when kids come up, I'm telling them, so like you're saying, you're trying to preempt danger. You're looking at yeah. risk assessments in a very modern way. The police are going to react. But these kids are all online. Look at what they did to yeah. Trump. They're all online. Building solidarity <laughs> that no one knows about, right? No yes. one knows about. When I sat there with a group of kids and they're telling me they listen to K-pop, they listen to Russian rap, yes. they listen to like, they're, they're telling me about South African rap. And I said, Honestly. they don't rap, they rap in Afrikaans. They said, I don't care. Yeah. I don't know what they say. So you like, see, uh, the synchronicity of online, what the, their online lives and real lives, what we used to complain about are one in the same. Yeah. Honestly, it's so interesting. Like, I've got obviously younger siblings who are at that age group. So my sister's 18 and my little brother's like 14. And it's genuinely like so baffling to just witness, right? Because you're 26. You never think that you're so far from 80, 18. I'm 26. I never thought like 18, like they're Man, doing 42. But they're Man, on a, <laughs> like they're on a next level, these kids. The like love them. The generational divide, like my sister and I, like when I see the way she moves, the, the things that they do, the, you know, how they're engaged with the world. I'm like, this isn't this isn't even my levels. Like, you know, there's a generational gap here. We're not the radicals. Listen, you know what? That, that proper like like stifled me. I was like, raw, I used to think of myself and I know all the theory. I know all the, you know, been through all the protests. And these kids were like, no, nah, we're just gonna pull up. And they mm-hmm. did it. And because th- that's what I mean. We're not radical like they are. You know, they're not concerned with imagery. They're not concerned with the ways in which kind of the structures have, you know, broken us down. They're going, okay, you can do your thing. I'm going to do it anyway. And that's the energy that I love. Like, but you see the energy, right? When you look back at people, black leaders and, and where they were, and look at the power. So Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Megan Evers, they all died before they were 40, right? Yeah. Young people will change the world, right? What do we do? We seek to kind of grind that and put you in a system and put you in a thing. But young people will change the world, right? They really do. We need that dialogue between so between old and new, right? So I need to connect with the with the kids. I'm not a kid anymore, man, but I can give you something back. But equally, yeah. they have something to say to give me. Yeah. So it's about old people. It's about someone like my age and my age group being open and saying like, listen, yeah, like I'm willing to listen. And it's a hard thing because I'm telling you, like, I live through epochs that you don't even understand. Equally, you're living in a moment that I don't understand. And it's trying to meet the two and say, yeah, boom, there's something there. But old people, we get stuck to our things, man, because experience is guiding me now. So I'm, oh, I'm, I'm risk averse. I'm risk averse. So, so I don't want to take any risks. So I see this movement. I'm thinking, you guys are fucking it up by having a street party. You're fucking it up. Just allow it. Like, pull yourself in. But now he just feels himself like, just allow it, man. I need to just ease myself back and say, Honestly, I'm willing to listen to you, man. Even my experience in education, even my kind of the disruptive nature of my existence, like you would have never thought it, but I was a that North London rude gal. Like I was that mm. person, right? Always disruptive. And I was disruptive because I just didn't feel like I could be contained. And there's yeah. so many people who are feeling like they need, you know, feeling like the structures are trying to contain them. And rather than kind of doing what I did and just kind of learn to navigate those, they're completely rejecting it. So I definitely, like when Angela Davis says she sees abolition in our time, look at how these young people do not, they don't, they're not here for these structures. They're not here for these boxes. They're not here to be contained. They're here to be disruptive. They're here to engage in who they are in the most authentic ways possible. 
I truly am a little bit hopeful. I'm like, this could happen. Because the way they're moving, we're going to have to stop now because this is a mini show. But that was absolutely brilliant. Like, and that's such a such a beautiful place to end, Khadija. Thank you so much. And I can't believe I'm leaving this discussion feeling like I've cr- I, I've started sad, I've cried, and now I'm leaving happy. So this yeah. has been a very nice, a very nice episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Khadija. Thank you, so much. Thank you Khadija. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Khadija's going to join us next season as well, guys. So you will be hearing more. Thank you, everyone, for supporting us. Thank you to our patrons. We have only got a couple more episodes of the Weekly Reflection left, but we'll keep you updated on where we're at with that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we'll see you all soon. See you guys. <laughs>